Welcome to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast, where we look at the trends impacting mid-sized companies and the influencers behind their success. I'm Deborah Cohen, Editor-in-Chief of Middle Market Growth Magazine. I'm here with Katie Mulligan, the magazine's Associate Editor. Katie, who'd you talk to for the podcast this week? Hey Deb, I spoke with Natasha Granholm, a partner with PwC who works with private equity clients on tax matters. She stopped by our office last week to talk about some of the tax reform provisions that she's watching for her clients and how a bill, if it does end up passing, uh, how that could affect tax planning for private equity firms. Wow, that seems uh, very topical right now, particularly as the Republicans' broad-sweeping tax package is winding its way through Congress. It's also a really nice compliment to the content on middlemarketgrowth.org where we've been tracking a lot of those issues. Definitely, yeah, it was was very interesting to hear her commentary as this is happening in real time. And she also touched on more generally just some of the innovation and disruption that's happening in tax as it becomes a more significant part of the financial services sector overall. Thanks, Katie. That sounds like a really interesting conversation. So let's get into the interview. Here's Katie speaking with Natasha Granholm. I'm here with Natasha Granholm, a partner with PwC. Natasha, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me. To start, can you talk briefly about your role at PwC and the types of clients that you work with? Absolutely. So as you mentioned, I'm a partner with PwC. I'm based in Chicago. I specialize in the private equity sector. So my I serve private equity clients not only in Chicago, but also in New York, Baltimore, and other places in the Midwest region. I have a client base that does include some large private equity managers, but um, many of my clients are in the small to middle market area as well. Can you highlight some of the key provisions that are affecting your clients and what impact you expect them to have? So that is a loaded question today. (laughs) There has been so much activity this past week, just in a week, and we're leading up to the Thanksgiving holiday. So, you know, who's to say what else will come? But in the meantime, um, despite the fact that the legislation remains subject to change, um, the current state for the private equity space includes, so let's talk about this. There's provisions that are impacting deal value, which our private equity clients care about, and then there are provisions that are impacting the GP members themselves, um, how they're invested in the fund, and then obviously their individual tax bill, right? So let's focus on the provisions that really are impactful to deal value. So first and foremost, we have the reduction in the corporate rate and the pass-through rate. That definitely is a game changer. We have interest expense limitations. So oftentimes in the private equity space, we're using debt to acquire these portfolio companies and the inability or limitation on those companies being able to deduct their interest expenses um, will be very impactful to the bottom line. Um, There's this repatriation tax or toll charge. So to the extent um, we have clients that own portfolio companies with foreign operations and there's cash sitting outside the US, there's going to be a deemed repatriation of of those, um, that cash or cash equivalents back to the US. And and that's gonna be taxed immediately. And so that is gonna be hugely impactful. Um, The other provision that is Um, top of mind for private equity managers and and in the context of their deal value is the capital expenditures. And so right now the proposal is to deny depreciation and amortization deductions at least for five years and allow immediate expensing. So that certainly is going to have an impact on deal value. 
If we think about the provisions that are most impactful to GPs, I mean, first and foremost, carried interest. Uh, so initially, carried interest was not part of the House plan. It crept its way back in through, via amendments. And so to the extent um, assets are not held for at least three years, then uh, you would not be privy to those very favorable 20% capital gains rates on the disposition of those investments. So carried interest and then obviously the pass-through rates. I think our GPs are very focused on what is the pass-through rate going to be. The House bill provides a significant reduction um, to certain types of income coming through and flow through form versus the Senate bill. So they are very far apart right now. We'll see where they end up in terms of the pass-through rate, but that's certainly going to impact them from a deal structuring perspective. Um, it's going to impact them in terms of how the income they get from the private equity fund is going to be taxed to them personally. Um, and then outside of carried interest in the pass-through rates, I would say, you know, the GPs are really focused on all those individual tax provisions that could impact them personally. I recently heard a panelist at a conference say that the change to tax treatment of S-corporations was, as he put it, the only place in the bill that will stimulate economic growth and jobs. Can you talk about why that might be the case and, and whether you agree with his perspective? We haven't at PwC done our own micro or macro analysis. Um, however, I have read and seen that other specialists um, in the area think that this bill could potentially increase the GDP over time um, anywhere from 1.5 to 5 percent. So certainly, you know, thinking about boosting growth and some of the provisions that potentially could boost growth would include, um, you know, the reduction in the corporate and pass-through rate that we just talked about. Mm -hmm. um, certainly some of these provisions provide incentives to invest back in the U.S. Um, and there are incentives to put capital in place, you know, at least for the next five years as we just, we just discussed. I do think that when you're talking about operating in S-corp form, um, a lot of the entities operating in that form are, are small business owners. So when we're thinking about reduction in tax rates at the corporate or pass-through level or incentives to invest back in the U.S. or incentives to put capital in place right now, at least for the immediate five years, those are all things that boost domestic growth and, and small businesses like those that are operating as court form. What are you hearing from clients in terms of how a tax reform bill, assuming that it goes through, how is that going to impact their decision-making or their strategy going forward? Absolutely. So it is beginning days, and so it's hard to take action at this time, but we should certainly be thinking about uh, strategy and how these provisions could impact um, private equity managers going forward. So, you know, in the terms of using debt to finance investments, that's something that we really need to stay close to. We need to see whether or not there will be limitations on the ability to deduct interest. Um, when we're thinking about the value of portfolio companies and the impact of these provisions on the value, when we think about deferred tax assets and, and the fact that if the corporate tax rate goes down, then those deferred tax assets um, simultaneously go down. And how does that impact the value of the portfolio company. Another thing to think about is uh, 
the TRAs, the tax receivable agreements, those have become very commonplace, um, very popular in recent years, and those are dependent upon future depreciation and amortization deductions. And if those go away and get replaced by immediate CapEx expensing, what does that do to the value of the TRA? Some other things that we're thinking about is how do we structure funds going forward? Is it best to have a management company in flow through form or corporate form? Is it best to hold a portfolio company in corporate form or flow through form? You know, do we use blockers? Uh, and I think that that's going to be a modeling exercise once all these provisions get finalized. And if we get tax reform actually passed, then we need to think through um, how these provisions interplay with each other and what the best answer is in terms of structure. The other thing that we're really thinking about is how to redeploy cash that's sitting abroad that some of our private equity clients are going to need to bring back to the U.S. If it's going to be taxed anyway, then let's think about how we redeploy that cash. Mm -hmm. And so is that going to be used to do a share buyback? Is that, go, you know, is that cash going to be used to pay down current debt? Could you use that cash to increase your R&D spend or um, spend it on technology investments or add-on acquisitions? So I think there are a lot of things to be thinking about um, to the extent the tax reform actually goes through. You mentioned carried interest a bit earlier. Um, it seems to, private equity firms seem to have been relatively protected from the changes to the treatment to carried interest. Do you expect that to remain the case or could carry become something that comes back on the table as lawmakers look for new sources of revenue. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the jury's still out on this one. So as we saw, you know, with the original version of the House bill, um, carried interest was not mentioned. And then through the amendment process, carried interest kind of crept its way back into the House bill, requiring um, the holders of assets to hold those assets for at least a three-year period in order to take care, you know, take advantage of the long-term capital gains rates. Uh, the Senate bill, however, that was just announced did not address carried interest at all. Mm -hmm. So those two bills depart in that regard. And as we know, um, once those bills go to the floor for vote, then the House and the Senate need to come together to put one bill in front of the president. And if that final bill includes carried interest or not, I have no idea. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, but what I will say, at least with respect to the current provision in the House bill, um, most of our private equity clients hold their assets for more than three years. So the requirement to hold it for three years or more to take advantage of that 20% long-term capital gains rate is really not a game changer for, our, for the private equity industry. I mean, there may be those rare instances where you do turn an investment in less than three years, but that's typically not the case. What other tax issues are your clients watching or concerned about right now? Provisions are getting a lot of media time right now and, and are of much debate, but there are some, some provisions in both the House and the Senate bill that would have a significant impact on clients that have portfolio companies with foreign subsidiaries or if they hold a foreign investment directly. So we talked briefly about the deemed repatriation tax or the toll charge and um, requiring that that untaxed earnings and profits be, be subject to tax in the U.S. is going to be significant for, for many of our clients. Uh, and so figuring out the impact of that and then again redeploying that cash. I think that um, portfolio companies need to consider the cash impact of the tax as well and the potential phantom income to the funds. 
the LPs and the GPs, right? And so, you know, in which of these instances are you going to have phantom income and how are you going to pay that tax? So um, some of these unintended consequences of these tax provisions are being worked through. I mean, the House bill in and of itself was over 400 pages and the devil is in the details. And so um, trying, you know, you get the summaries and you get the headlines through the media and you're trying to understand, you know, the true impact. But, but honestly, working through all of the details and figuring out the ultimate impact is going to be key. Can you um, talk a little bit more about phantom income, what, what that is and, and how that's impacting? So phantom industry? income happens anytime um, there is a requirement to report taxable income and pay tax on that income when you don't actually receive cash to pay the tax. Okay, and so um, having a requirement whereby any unearned or untaxed earnings and profits related to foreign activities, the activities of your foreign subsidiaries, um, that is that activity or income is going to be subject to tax in the U.S. and you have to report that income in the U.S. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have the cash to distribute back to the U.S. private equity fund and from the fund up to the investors. So if you don't have the cash to cover the tax from the resulting income pickup because of these new tax provisions, then that's where phantom income arises. Mm-hmm. Um, Switching gears a little bit, PwC published a report called Asset Management 2025 and Beyond recently, which looked at how investment firms are evolving to meet new challenges as tax becomes a more significant part of the financial services sector. Can you talk about what some of those challenges are and how you're seeing your clients adapt? Sure. I mean, our clients continue to grow and become more complex, and it creates, it does create additional regulatory and investor reporting requirements. It puts a lot of pressure on the back office to operate efficiently, to get access to data quickly, to leverage technology as much as possible to minimize costs. So all of these demands and requirements come, which take more time, but we can't really incur more costs, right? Because you get pressure from the LPs to give them the highest return as possible. So things like the common reporting standard, where if you're operating abroad, there's immediate exchange of information across countries Mm -hmm. and having the ability to quickly access the data for those foreign regulators and ensure that they're getting accurate reporting is, is difficult. And so figuring out how you can meet the demands of, you know, U.S. regulators, foreign regulators, your LPs, um, and all of the challenges that come about from this, you know, is is top of mind. So that certainly is addressed in our asset management 2025 and beyond um, in just the global environment and all of these things happening globally, the impact on the economy, the impact on investing more broadly, and the impact on meeting these demands of regulators and LPs. And what role are you seeing limited partners play in driving change in how GPs approach transparency and disclosure around tax matters? So we've seen a significant increase in fundraising in 2017. And so um, it's, it's certainly top of mind for me in terms of how I get my GPs ready to respond to LP requests, at least from a tax perspective, for sure. Um, But I do think that LPs are becoming a bit more aggressive in terms of the information that they're asking for, the level of transparency um, that they require. And honestly, it's not due to their own personal 
you know, desire to have access to their information, they themselves are subject to increased tax and financial reporting requirements. Mm-hmm. And so they need certain types of information from the, the fund in order to meet their own personal obligations from a reporting perspective. So it's not just, you know, the LPs working with ILPA or other or getting together and saying, we want access to this data, we need more, we want to make sure that, you know, um, we understand what we're investing. I think that's part of it. But the, but the more important part of it is the fact that they have equal pressures from a financial and tax reporting perspective to relay that information as well. Data and technology are obviously disrupting industries and departments across the board. What kind of innovation are you seeing in terms of how companies approach their tax functions? So this is something that we're talking to our clients about a lot, um, and we have been the past you know, couple of years. As a firm, you know, from, from PwC's perspective, we have invested a significant amount um, in technology to make sure that we are operating more efficiently and effectively, leveraging robotics and machine learning, mm-hmm. um, leveraging you know, tools from a data and analytics perspective that can help us access data more quickly and present a visual to our clients so that you have better insights into your data. Mm-hmm. So we certainly have been making for several years now significant investments in technology so that we can um, be more value add to our clients. And I think um, the same the same requirement is on private equity managers. And so I do think that Taking a look into your back office and having an understanding of what's appropriate to insource versus outsource to meet the demands of your investors is key. Mm-hmm. To the extent you decide to keep it in-house, how are you leveraging technology? What are the skills of your people? Do you have the right resources internally to be able to respond quickly and efficiently to requests? Uh, and so if you don't have the people can the people be supplemented with technology so that you can meet the demands? Um, if you don't have the people or the technology and you don't have the pocketbook to get the people or the technology, then perhaps you're looking at to outsource. And then really thinking through your service providers, what their skills are, what technologies they're using to operate efficiently is very key. And then last question, switching gears a little bit, um, what have you been reading lately? What's, uh, what's on your nightstand or, or what are you taking with you on the airplane? So what have I been reading lately outside of tax reform? (laughs) I actually have not been reading lately um, because I read so much for work. So I took up a new hobby, which I take on the airplane, which is crocheting. Okay. And so my kids have fingerless gloves and bracelets and necklace and leg warmers and head wraps and scarves. Um, I have blankets. It's been a stress reliever, and it's very easy to do, very portable. It's a very portable hobby. What a great idea, and also very practical for Chicago winters. Yes, although I've been doing it all us. through the summer. Okay. <laughs> and people gearing up for Yes, season. gearing up for the winter. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Natasha, for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in the iTunes store where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. And while you're there, we'd love it if you could rate the show and leave a review to help other listeners find out about us. And after you've rated the show, head over to our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more stories about successful mid-sized companies and trends in middle market M&A.